It's the second cup of Joe and John with Joe Elvis and John Dwyer. John, greetings. Joe! The summer of 60. It's, well, that's it's the summer of 60. That's where I was going. You know, my favorite part of life was rolling into the spring through all the school years. And I can remember it from elementary, junior high, high school, college. When you hit the month of May, you knew summer was ahead. Plans were being made. It was great. Now, our birthdays are both summer birthdays, and yeah. we're both going to hit the freaking 40. Yeah, jeez. So it's uh, it, it was always, uh, I don't know what, the girls were always cuter. They Tanner. always smelled better in their Public swimming thing. And, uh, it, oh, and it went on forever. And because it our did. school, I don't know about you, yeah. where I grew up, Labor Day. Labor Day. And now they start, honest to goodness, mm-hmm. there's some schools that start late July because yeah. I've run a program now that is in local high schools. And they'll be like, can we yeah. uh, uh, do this in August? No, we start school August 2nd. You don't have that long summer no. anymore. That was three full months, June, July, and August, to work. Mainly is what we did once we got into the high school years. But now, as you said, my sons are in uh, college age, and it's just June and July. It is just two months. The first week of August, they're getting their stuff ready and to go back to uh, school, which our guest uh, will be able to testify here with his lifestyle at Vanderbilt. So my question where I was leading is summer songs. I always have, still to this day, summer songs. Music I hear on the radio and it makes me feel like summer. Anytime, anytime, Seals and Crofts, Summer Breeze kicks on. Never turn that Diamond, off. Diamond Girl kicks on. Hummingbird. Hummingbird was a great one. What, do you have a couple favorite summer songs while you're doing your I, debauchery in South I Benedictine? really do. It was, <laughs> uh, people know or may know, I, I come from a three-generation Ford dealership family, and so we had a 73 Mustang convertible, red dad, switched out the top and put a Mach 1 hood on it. It wasn't a Mach 1. We had the raised white letter Cooper tires. Of course. And you'd get the Wesley's bleach white and I, to, to make those puppies, you know, sparkle. With a little brush, and not I, too stiff because you don't want to make them rough. Right. And then you got the toothbrush to get to, to yeah. get the chrome. And it, it, and it was white interior and uh, had an 8-track. And I'm trying to think of the, the, uh, the company. It had an AM radio. Uh, not even FM. It was a Phillips or I can't remember. Sure. But yeah, I Joe, I I, I wax nostalgic when I when I think of putting an eight track in there of um, Alice Cooper's greatest hits. Sure. I got into the Commodores. Uh, didn't know well. Mallencamp wasn't wasn't uh, doing his thing yet. Uh, but yeah, some the the seventies right before disco. There are so many. You know. Elton John was was a huge influence on, yeah. on my life. His greatest hits was always a good one. Um, In my, uh, oh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you my okay. go to was was uh, James Taylor's greatest hits. Sure. And then uh, was that I was on a, a date or something. <laughs> was it on a Did you have your date tape? Car car was parked. You That's all your, I'm going to tell you. you. Had your date tape. <laughs> <laughs> Mixtape. <laughs> Mixtape. And also Ambrosia was big. Yeah. I, I did. So I you're, did that. you're skewing towards the '80s now. Am I? Yeah, okay. a little bit. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, what What about you? You, you say that. Uh, uh, I loved the 70s. So still, even AM Fragile, radio, yes. Fragile, yes, was big. Roundabout was big for me. I, I'm going to go deeper of the Carpenters, uh, the <laughs> fifth dimension. When that AM sound comes on, and still, I live by the 650 AM WSM Tower here in Nashville, and I'll listen to them just 
because it's AM, you go under a bridge, it cuts out, and it comes back on. But AM radio with the uh, the Carpenters, uh, Glenn Campbell's Wichita linemen, stuff like that, just the, the glory of the 70s, because uh, that was my era. Everything was great, and just you're driving down the road with the windows down because you really didn't have great air conditioning back then. And you, ra- you, you know, when you, and when you, and you move your arm up and down and people have no idea, yeah, like you're doing, rolling. like roll down the window and they're like, we have no, no idea. I'll give you one. And then we'll get on with our guest. Blood, sweat, and tears. Oh, greatest yeah. hits. Perfect. Ba-da, ba-da. Oh, and you Chicago's greatest so. hits. Chicago's greatest Chicago hits. 24, six, killer. six to four is just one of my favorites. I hear beginnings kick in. Bang. Our guest just left, by the way. Uh, he just well, he just walked. He goes, he's 20 years younger than us, so he's going, you guys are idiots. <laughs> You're fun. All right, let's, let's get to our guest. Hey, we know people. Let's take a spin through Joe and John's Rolodex. And Joe, it ends with uh, the letter M. Mm. M. Mm. New York Times bestselling author, and longtime friend and one of the coolest, most talented guys that uh, calls Middle Tennessee home, Andrew Marinus. Andrew, welcome to the Second Cup of Joe and John. Thanks, guys. I didn't realize this was going to be such a like AARP special, you know, with eight oh. tracks and like the manual oh. windows yeah, and everything. Hey, thanks okay. for coming. Yeah. Okay, we're going to play the ending now. No, Go just... Vols. <laughs> oh, that's cruel. <laughs> we were joking earlier. We were trying to give away a, a JTG t-shirt and we have new branding and, and one's orange and I, he almost he almost threw up. Yes, he did. I mean, he just said, I could not. Yeah. He's a longtime Vanderbilt guy and works at Vanderbilt and uh, that's how we met. Right? That's right. You yeah. were in uh, the sports information Yes, and, I came uh, here to school in 88, worked, yeah. it was in, graduated in 92, and then uh, worked in the athletic department from 92 to 97, and I think that's when we met the first time when I was uh, in that role. And you, um, uh, and I, this has to be mentioned, because I'm, when I moved here in 96, getting to know Mr. Fred Russell was a huge honor for me, and I read all his books, uh, because I felt like if I came here, I had to, you know, I'm the new guy, and I didn't grow up here, and so the Fred Russell, Grant Lund Rice Sports Writing Scholarship, right here, dog. Right that was uh, probably the single most important <laughs> moment of my life uh, outside of anything family-related was the day that um, we found out that I had won that scholarship. I had gone to uh, high school in Texas, in Austin, and played baseball at Austin High, but I was also the sports editor of a school newspaper. And one day there was a, a poster on the wall at the school that was advertising this full-tuition scholarship to Vanderbilt. Um, named after Mr. Russell and Grantland Rice, two famous sports writers that had gone to Vandy in the early 1900s and um, I applied for it and I remember vividly it was uh, called the all sports picnic where all the um, teams had a picnic one of the last days of school you basically didn't have any class but you just had fun at a park in Austin and my mom and my sister showed up at this picnic and my mom was crying and I had no idea why they were there or why she was crying I was embarrassed that they were there and she said, there's no uh, crying in baseball, no by crying. the way. Right, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's where they got it. Um, and she said, Vanderbilt called, you won the scholarship. And oh. my daughter now is 12. She talks about happy tears. And that's what those were. And so that's what brought me here. And because it was a sports writing scholarship, I always felt really um, attached to the athletic program at Vanderbilt. So when I was in school majoring in history, 
Again, I was a sports editor of the Vanderbilt student paper, got to know a lot of people at the athletic department, and that's where I felt most comfortable on campus um, at a school that I didn't necessarily feel that comfortable in otherwise. But I felt like coaches and the athletes were just regular, ordinary people that uh, I felt like I was more had more in common than with them than a lot of the typical Vanderbilt student of that era. University has changed quite a bit, but um, so I've always had that attachment. Big black and gold guy. I remember one day when I was working there around the time uh, that you first came to town, Jerry DiNardo was the football coach at Vanderbilt, and he had a very strict, I don't even think he would say the word Tennessee, right? And so certainly no orange. They didn't even have orange cones on the field. <laughs> and uh, you couldn't wear any orange. No one would like typically yep. just wear an orange shirt. But like I had a T-shirt that was maybe from a 5K or something. I had a speck of orange on it. And I was asked to leave practice one time. <laughs> you got <That's> booted <laughs> by Jerry DiNardo. <laughs> yes. So going to uh, the math, uh, you graduated Vanderbilt in 92. Yes. So that'll put you in high school in the 80s yes. and such. We were talking about songs. Did you have an era of music that reminded you of summer? Of summer, yeah. I was thinking about that when you guys were talking about it. Probably uh, Cool It Now, New Edition, was okay. uh, a yeah. song that I remember listening to a lot in high school. Um the thing that I remember most about the radio in the summer, though, is is not music necessarily from my childhood. It's baseball on the radio. Okay. And Great. I'm originally from Wisconsin and uh, moved when I was four, but I always remained a fan of the Brewers. And my grandparents were still in Milwaukee. We would go back to visit them, and I would always make them take me to a game. But if we weren't at the game, we were listening on the radio to Bob Euchre. Yeah. And it's been so fun for me that he's still the voice of yeah. the Brewers. He has been my entire life, you know, and nothing says summer to me than hearing Bob Euchre's voice on the radio. Well, we've talked about that with our broadcasting history. I grew up uh, uh, just outside Philadelphia. So on the AM, we got Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn. And then we go to Michigan. We had that in common for summers. And uh, we listened to Jack Brickhouse on WGN. And then, of course, Harry Carey. Yeah. And then uh, my family's from Cincinnati. So 700 WLW brought Joe Nuxall and Marty Brenneman. And that was just itself another great area era of broadcasting. I mean, all these names it? you've mentioned are all legends. You right know, and, I, and I'm thinking uh, from my memory is, is to hide the AM radio underneath my my pillow and you call it skip you know i could on a clear night sometimes i could pick up yeah. the minnesota twins the detroit tigers the pittsburgh pirates bob prince mm -hmm. uh certainly uh uh the, the cardinals do you remember i mean could you down in texas on a clear night pick up you know maybe oh, yeah. maybe uh atlanta brazers i don't know for sure and that's something that my dad has always loved he always is buying different radios he always loved to listen to uh, various you know pickup stations from other cities and always had this idea, like, wouldn't it be cool if you could just get every station? Then satellite radio comes along. He's like, that's what I've been talking about all <laughs> these years. my <laughs> idea. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's funny. We're going to move on. Common sense would tell you not to look to Joe and John for this, but time for life lessons from Joe and John. Oh, boy. Andrew Marinus on the second cup of Joe. And, and John. John. We've really liked doing that. I don't know why. <laughs> so stupid. You mentioned Wisconsin. You mentioned uh, coming up from the Wisconsin area era. Yeah, yeah. I believe your father David was a Pulitzer Prize winner. Your mom's an author as well. So uh, uh, maybe in this vein here, uh, how did that? Obviously, they influenced you as you were a successful writer. Now, so where were there in life lessons that you said? You know, I mean, being a writer as a small kid is probably not the most important thing like baseball girls or whatever else right uh where was it where you said you know i'm good enough and i've been around it and i want to write for a living okay um 
I've kind of gone through some ups and downs with in terms of feeling that way. You know, um, when I was a kid, my father was a, a reporter and editor at the Washington Post. And so we, I grew up in D.C. and I would hang around him. They were, my parents were 20 when I was born. So they just took me everywhere, you know, and, and I remember going to press conferences with him or sitting under his desk, you know, at the Post or going over to the sports department and stealing all the AP wire photos of the Milwaukee Brewers. You know, they have nothing in their files of Brewers because uh, I have it all. Um, and so I, I always felt like either I was going to be a shortstop for the Brewers or I was going to be just like my dad and be a newspaper guy. He wrote his first book after I graduated from college. And so I didn't grow up with an author in the family necessarily as a role model, but definitely a writer. And all of the f- people that would come over to our house, you know, for parties or that were their friends were journalists. Um, and so I saw that as a profession that I was interested in and seemed possible. Like if my dad can do it, I could probably do it too. My grandfather had been a newspaper editor also, and my grandmother was a book editor. Uh, so writing was always, uh, and journalism was always thought of as like a noble profession and um, a possibility. Then the scholarship uh, I thought that's what I would do after college was um, be a sports writer. Um, but I didn't get a job immediately as a sports writer. I got a job first working in the athletic department at Vandy, and it seemed adjacent to what I was interested in, you know. Um, and so always loving baseball, I applied for a job with every Major League Baseball team also to work in their communications office. And I remember when I was in college getting – the rejection letters from every team, but saving them because they were cool letters that had the logos of all the (laughs) major league teams on them. And then finally in 97, you know, it was announced that the Diamondbacks and the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at the time were coming along. And since they were expansion teams, they needed staff, you know, they didn't have any positions filled. And so I was lucky and I got a job as the media relations manager for the Tampa Bay Rays uh, their first year. And so I moved to St. Pete, was with them. And I thought, well, maybe this is going to be my career. Um, but it turned out not to be like the dream job that I, I thought it would. I was also going through some personal uh, issues with a fiance here in East Nashville. We're recording this. And so we had a long distance engagement. Do you, do you have trauma? Yeah, like, I do. Every time I cross the bridge. Like, oh, no. <laughs> the biggest trauma is understanding that we paid $140,000 for our house oh, over on Scott oh, Avenue. It's God. probably a million dollar house now. Oh, very wealthy now. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Let, 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 it, let it go. Let it go, Andrew. All right. So it was a, um, but he's right. it was a t- yeah, mm-hmm. tough year. Um, came back, started working at a PR firm in Nashville. Was there for 18 years. And at that point, uh, had a, you know, a good career, but missed the sports aspect and missed the writing uh, for myself aspect. I was writing on behalf of clients. And so I came back to a project I had done as a college student, which was a paper on Perry Wallace for a black history class that I took at Vanderbilt in 1989 and 17 years later picked back up on it. And I emailed Perry and said, do you remember me? I was a kid that wrote a paper about you years ago. We did an interview back then. And um, he said he did. And so I said, I'd like to write a biography about you. And I don't know if he thought I'd ever actually do it, but he said that was fine with him. And um, so I got started writing that book. It took me eight years to write it. And that kind of reignited my love for um, writing And I think it was at the point that the book actually came out that I saw that I didn't know that I could really be an author until the book really came out. You know, I was existed in my head, then it existed on the computer. But once it was something that other people could hold and read and there was a good response to the book, that's when it really took hold. 
and another one of your books, uh, it is still you're still hanging in the sports uh, vein. Was singled out mm-hmm. uh, the biography of Glenn Burke, who was the first openly gay major league baseball player, right? Um, and invented the high five. Yes, what? He also Glenn was the first Burke major league player to wear Nikes in a game. He was a pretty uh, what innovative guy. <laughs> and I'll be at the uh, Sounds game uh, tonight. I don't know if, when the show will run, but tonight I'll be there at Pride yeah, Night. This at won't Sounds. air. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I will been have there. been at the Pride yes. Pride Night game at the Sounds. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I, baseball being my favorite sport, I was looking for another story that could combine sports and a social issue. So Perry's story really is about basketball, but it's about racism and civil rights movement. Glenn Burke's story is about uh, an interesting person, but homophobia that, that ran him out of the game. Um, and uh, using those stories, they're, they're considered, um, the singled out book is considered a young adult book. And so I spend a lot of time visiting middle schools and high schools. And I know you're in schools all the time, yeah. John, but like trying to get kids interested in reading through sports you know um, kids that age especially boys are not really reading that much but maybe if there's a basketball player or a baseball player on the cover they'll actually pick up the book and then get uh, more than a sports story and then hopefully discover that they actually might like reading books and read all sorts of books well this is i think a stat came out even yesterday uh 13 down on kids passing and reading activities in schools it's continuing to plummet so yes. you're you're there's a void that you can fill now uh more than ever uh back to glenn burke though invented the high five yeah how can he say that or what okay. how, how, yeah. where, where's there's, the copyright how, yeah. how, how did that happen i mean who knows like a thousand years ago people might have done the gesture right but there was no one there to record it so um what happened was the Los Angeles Dodgers in 1977 uh, were about to set a record for having uh, four players uh, hit 30 or more home runs in the same season. Dusty Baker was the last of the four. He was stuck on 29. And if he were to hit one more homer, you know, they would set this major league record. And it comes down like a movie to the last game of the season. They're playing the Astros at Dodger Stadium. J.R. Richard is on the mound for the oh, Astros. Man. And, Dusty can't hit J.R. Richard. Flamethrower. Exactly. So he's like, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let my teammates down. And Glenn Burke is on deck when Dusty Baker does hit the home run to set the record. And as he's crossing home plate, headed back to the dugout, Glenn's there to greet him. He's waving his arm up in the air like, congratulations. And Dusty slaps it. And the Dodgers, there's a picture of it. The Dodgers coined the term high five. They started to use it on their uh, marketing materials and media guide the next year. Up on the scoreboard, like when they would do a trivia contest between innings, they would say, you know, if you got it right, turn to your side and lift up your arm and extend it forward. Like they're teaching people how to <laughs> high-five. No, there's, no, there's a tutorial. Yeah, high-five tutorial. High um, oh and so I interviewed Dusty Baker for the book, and I said, well, it takes two people to high-five, so who really gets the credit for inventing it? And he said that, and Dusty's from uh, Northern California. He said, anything cool in life comes from the Bay Area. That's where Glenn grew up in Berkeley and Oakland. So you got to give Glenn credit for what the invention. Co- what a great That's story. A great story. What a great story. I, I want to go back to Inside Strong. And mm-hmm. you, I'm probably echoing what a lot of people tell you. I read the book, was moved by it, and immediately went to Parnassus or Amazon and, and bought 10 copies wow. and, and made sure that when I went to our high schools, I gave it and I said, this is not only a sports book, it's a history book. It taught me so much about the Nashville area. If you have just moved or moved here the last 20 years, this book is is just, it's a history book for me. I thought it's required reading. I think it is absolutely outstanding. This is like Joe and I putting a resume tape together. Joe gets to go to 
WABC in New York, and I take Bob Costas' place. You out of the gate. Now, it took you 18 years or eight years, and then yeah. you did the paper. To, to be a bestseller and to have, and I remember when that book popped, and you were all over the country. Right out of the gate, you didn't work in Defiance, Ohio, okay, on radio or where I, you right. know. I mean, you, did you, that that just had to be surreal to have this book, this physical book you're holding, have such an impact on so many. So I congratulate you, and, you know, you put the bar pretty high for yourself. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was a labor of love working on the book. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. And so, good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and it, but it was kind of backwards, especially for a nonfiction book um, that you would spend eight years working on something. You don't even know if it's going to get published or not. Sure. But I really just um, admired Perry so much. I thought his story needed to be told and that it would be worthwhile for me to work on it, whether anybody ever read it or not. And so finally, Vanderbilt University Press was the publisher, which seems kind of obvious in retrospect. They might be interested in a story about one of their own graduates, but really it's an academic press. They don't really do like popular types of books or sports books necessarily. Um, so I was really grateful for that. Um, you know, it, yeah, it was very surprising to everybody that would end up on the New York Times bestseller list. I think it was ultimately thanks to an NPR All Things Considered story um, that Audie Cornish did, who had a background in Nashville before she went to NPR. She came to Perry's office in D.C. and did an interview with both of us. And that's what really sort of uh, gained, gave the book some credibility beyond, oh, this would be just a story of interest to Nashville people or to Vanderbilt people. Although, like you said... Um, because I had the luxury of writing for a university press, you could write a little bit longer than maybe a trade press in New York. And the feedback I was getting from publishers and agents before uh, I had one was no one's going to be interested in this book. There's only three things that matter in a nonfiction or in a biography. It's the name recognition of the author. And no one's ever heard of you, Andrew. Name recognition of the subject. No one's ever heard of Perry Wallace. And then the story, you know, and you, at best, you're just going to have one of those three. And we think it's just going to be a regional interest book in Nashville or the South. And I felt like Perry's story was like illustrated so much more. Sure, it takes place here, but it's about human nature and racism and um, just, you know, perseverance and courage and all these like very uh, things that apply to everybody, you know. Um, sure. And I think that's what ultimately resonated with people and gave it a bigger um, life. But what I was saying about the, the having the university press, they allowed me to tell more about the history of the university or, or of North Nashville and set the scene and the environment where Perry was coming up, which I think adds a lot to the book. Andrew Marinus, uh, a New York Pulitzer Prize winning author right here. And also, uh, you're still in media relations at Vanderbilt right now? Uh yeah, so my dad's a Pulitzer winner. I haven't gotten that far yet. Well, but just yeah, take it. yeah just I'll take it. it if you want to say it. Yeah, and <laughs> I'm back at Vandy for a, the second time. In, okay. Like, but I'm not in media relations this time. I'm called a special projects director, which is uh, pretty much whatever um, Candace wants it to be from day to day. So I work in <laughs> Candace Lee's office, fantastic athletic director. I'm really happy to be back there. And she and the university are supportive of me kind of having – Two lives, you know, like where I work for Vandy, but I also am an author. Well, let's go back to uh, your final book, and we'll move on from this. Uh, <clears throat> you wrote uh, Games of Deception, so the first Olympics in Nazi Berlin in 1936. Um, that was, I think, uh, Jesse Owens had his four gold medals during that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's pre-World War II, which started, I think, in 39-ish. So uh, what, what's, what, what inspired you to get yeah. back uh, to that where uh, Jewish athletes 
were not really allowed to participate. They had some, but not. What mm-hmm. a what a odd, freaky time for yeah. the Olympics. So it's, uh, Games of Deception is the story of the first U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, which played at the 36 Olympics in Nazi Germany. Um, I was in Lawrence, Kansas, to speak uh, about Strong Inside. And while I was there, I really wanted to see Allen Fieldhouse, where the Jayhawks play. I'd never been there before. I don't know if you guys have ever been there, but there. I haven't. No. I mean, it's it's worth it, even if there's not a game. The the um, basketball museum they have there is amazing, and of course, James Naismith, the inventor of the game, was their first coach. So I mean, that's where it starts, and then through Adolph Rupp and Dean Smith and everybody. So um, it's quite a museum. But they have a picture of Naismith next to uh, a Japanese basketball player uh, in the 1930s. And uh, an aside about Naismith, he's the only coach in Kansas basketball history with a losing record. So the inventor of basketball couldn't win more games than he lost as a head coach. Um, but I asked a question about this picture. Like, what's the story? And I said, well, did you know that Naismith was able to see his invention played in the Olympics? And I, as a basketball fan, I didn't know that. And I asked, well, which Olympics was it? And when they said it was the 36 Olympics in Nazi Germany, I, like right then looking at that picture, I was like, this could be a really interesting book, uh, especially for young people, you know, to talk about the invention and the uh, origins of basketball, such a popular sport. How does it become so popular within the inventor's own lifetime in an era before TV or internet worldwide that it's played in the Olympics, you know, while they're still alive. And then it's those Olympics, you know, and so that I could talk about, um, like you said, it was a, a early Hitler uh, regime, you know, like what was taking place that before everything that kids typically read about or learn about in school and the road to the Holocaust um, and then the really interesting stories of the first dream team, the first U.S. team. Half the team came from an oil refinery in Kansas where they worked for a company basketball team. The other half of the team worked at Universal Studios in Hollywood, and they were like stagehands on movies, especially horror films. Their manager didn't really have a coach. They had more of just an organizer, a manager. His, he was the head makeup artist at the movie studio, and he created the looks. Like if you imagine a Frankenstein movie or a Hunchback of Notre Dame, he was the guy that created those like iconic costumes, and he was he was the guy running this. Turned out to be Olympic basketball team. You know what? Rapid, 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 That's one of the worst segues I've ever done in my life. No. I, I hit the button and it, I just, just like shut up. Or or another like a, the, the, just, the needle went across the record. Sometimes he looks at me with his finger up high and just lowers it as he stares at me. Enough of you, sir. Actually, this will be perfect because it'll be my perf- first question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, rapid fire questions. They're Those not going to be rapid. They're right. not going to be rapid, nor okay. do your responses need to be. All right. But they can be. Um, <laughs> what... What was flying at the 1936 Olympics? I, I know. Go ahead. Hindenburg. It was. The Hindenburg. It didn't blow up till like 39, I think. A couple, no, four, like 40, 40 uh, that later that year, I think, uh, made mm-hmm. a transatlantic flight. And I think it's Manchester Township in New Jersey. You see the footage of that and you think, oh, that's overseas or something. Mm-hmm. But it happened in New Jersey. And yeah. We fly it over it all the time for work when we go into New York. And I look down there and I go, well, that's where the Hindenburg is. <laughs> you, you know, we have a guest. I'm just saying, I just, that's one of the worst <laughs> first rapid fire, fire questions that you a- and yeah. ask and answer yourself. Enough well, about you. Uh, Let me tell you about my statistics. <laughs> he wrote the book. I thought he'd know hey, that's the Hindenburg. I knew that right That's away. really rapid fire. I didn't even have a chance. Yeah, there's some eerie pictures of. And, and paintings, too, of yep. that blimp over the Olympic Stadium with the swastika uh, trailing it. Speaking of the Hindenburg, it reminds me of, I know this is recorded, but what's okay. going on with the uh, 
submersible oh, right now. That terrible. Yeah. But the memes have been pretty good. <laughs> they, 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 they have been absolutely brutal. Um, next question. What What is on your nightstand right now? Uh, a book about... It's a book. Uh, yeah, it's a book. And a lamp and a glass of water. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Three-week-old authors don't sandwich. read. <laughs> they don't They're messy people. <laughs> Two things. I'll say uh, a new biography of Martin Luther King by Jonathan Eig, who was just in town to speak at Parnassus. Um, great author, best-selling author. Really looking forward to that one. But also... Several books about Pat Tillman. So my next project uh, a is a series uh, for really young kids, like first graders, who are f- just beginning to read chapter books on their own called Beyond the Game. And there'll be four books initially in the series about athletes that have done something interesting or good for the world outside of their sport. And so the first book is on uh, Maya Moore, who was a WNBA star, top of her game, quit to help get a man out of prison who was there for a crime he didn't commit. Second book will be on LeBron and the school that he started in Akron. Um, third book will be on Pat Tillman. And we all know Pat Tillman's story, you know, leaving the NFL to um, enlist in the Army and uh, killed by friendly fire and controversy about the way the Army handled the um, aftermath of that. And then the fourth book, To Be Determined. But right now I'm in the research stage of the Tillman book and reading John Krakauer's great book on him and then uh, Tillman's mom and his wife have both written books as well. So... A lot of my reading tends to be research uh, for the books that I'm working on. A great closer would be a story on two aging broadcasters that have a podcast. That is really good. Thank you so yes. much. Mm-hmm. We're talking about books. Uh, what about music? You're in Nashville. What's uh, what's on your Apple phone or well, in your? Uh, maybe you have a turntable now. <laughs> it's funny you guys were talking about like uh, nostalgic music because uh-huh. just recently I put a '90s country channel on um, Pandora. And my kids are 12 and 10, and so they'd never heard any of these songs before. And my wife really does not want them to grow up, like, being big country fans or, like... What? Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, we've been listening to a lot of, like, Hal Ketchum and Brooks and Dunn and... Uh, sure. <laughs> um, Leroy Parnell and stuff Exile. like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great era of country music. Yeah, I that's- felt like it. That's when I first graduated from college. It's when I first felt like, I, okay, I live in Nashville now. Like, when you're in the bubble on campus you don't necessarily feel like you're a nashvillian but well that was the transition from the conway twitties of the world to the 80s country then garth stuck came on board and the whole rocket shot up into space which equated to these young guys and their beards parading around on stage (laughs) today so that's a great era i can't believe that you mentioned conway twitty without once again telling the story you you worked for conway twitty did I do it? Yeah. At the theme park, didn't you? <sighs> yeah, we we. <we've>, <laughs> I think that's funny. Uh, dead or alive, um, two or three dinner guests you'd love to be with, and hopefully have alive at the time at the, yeah, at the yeah, dinner table. It's good. Well, they wouldn't eat much if they <laughs> if you weaken at Bernie's, but, but Uber eats. <laughs> what? Who, who who would you like to to, to, yeah, to break bread with? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Um, if I, I'll keep it in the sports realm sure. just for fun. Yeah, so sure. um, I wish Perry Wallace were still alive. He was the wisest person I ever met, um, had such a great perspective on life and current events and uh, really always just felt better about myself and the world, even when I was down on myself or the world, like if I spent time around Perry. So I'd say him for sure. Um, as a lifelong Brewers fan, I would love to talk to uh, Harvey Keene, who was the manager of the 1982 Brewers, my still the basically the only great team in brewers history that's right the team that was at the heart of my childhood and hooked me harvey's wall bangers yeah harvey's wall bangers 
which followed Bambi's Bombers when they had George Bamberger, but Gorman Thomas, Paul Molitor, Robin Young, all those guys, that was my team. My Twitter handle is TrueBlue24, which is a reference to the True Blue Brew Crew and Ben Ogilvie, who was number 24. Awesome. Um, so I'll put those guys on the list. Um, all right, I'll, go, I'll move beyond sports. It seems like such a cliche to say it, but like somebody like MLK or JFK, I think, sure. I mean, just as a history person, I would love to um, – to have met them. Also, Fannie Lou Hamer is someone that Perry said was the most influential figure in his life. She came to speak at Vanderbilt when he was a student, and um, she had been through so much as a civil rights advocate in Mississippi, and she was a tiny person, and Perry's 6'5", but he said her presence was so powerful that he found himself literally backing up from her, just like in awe of her presence, and if someone had that impact on Perry, who I look up to so much, I know that it would be pretty amazing for and me Perry too. Perry Wallace explained you might have already. Was he a lawyer or a professor? What, mm-hmm. what did he end up doing? Yeah, after job. Vanderbilt, uh, he went to law school at Columbia, so That's he was an Ivy League law student, and then he became an attorney for the U.S. Justice Department, That's what it was. and then a professor. So uh, he was the first black tenured law professor at the University of Baltimore Law School, and then. For the last 20 or so years of his life, he was a law professor at American University in D.C. If you could go back and give your 18-year-old self advice, what would it be? Uh, I mean, some people might have the opposite advice, but like for me, it would be to have more fun in college. Like I approached it so uh, seriously, I didn't really loosen up until my senior year, probably. Um, and you only get that experience once. I think I would go back and just take it easy on myself a little bit. Um, and then on the opposite side, I think uh, to be a little bit more intentional about life. You know, like I don't, I'm not the type of person that sits down and has like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. And maybe those never work out the way you really intended anyway. But I do think it's important to... Um, have a little more intentionality than I have rather than sort of just let things happen and, and then react to them. Sure. Joe and John have come to the fork in the road. Andrew, you um, you probably have talked about many things, but we love to, uh, and mention forks in the road in your life, but Joe and I, we love to, as we uh, are Nashville-centric, motivational, inspirational, we think, uh, we hope you make you smile when you listen to this or, or you know, not turn it off. Uh, you know, we all have those moments of not getting that one job or, you know, I by happenstance how we met our wives. Mm-hmm. What's, what's a fork, uh, and it can be last week or 35 years ago, that if that had happened, you would have easily gone in another direction? Is there well, anything? Yeah, I mean, there's event? several. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've been talking so much about Nashville and Perry and Vanderbilt. If I hadn't gotten the scholarship, I would, I would have gone to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, played D3 baseball. Wow. Only because they played two games a year at the Metrodome, and I thought that was cool. <laughs> you know, like, uh, who knows what would have happened with my life if I had sure. done that. You know, um, leaving the Rays after one year and coming back here and going in a different direction was a major fork in the road for me leaving the PR firm after 18 years and deciding that what I really want to do is be able to write books and um, be involved in athletics again. You know, uh, I I consider those the major uh, turning points in my life that have changed my career in different directions, but also ultimately led to meeting my wife now and having two great kids. And so um, I'm thankful for those 
changes, but they were kind of in almost in every case, sort of the, the unexpected choice. Where'd you meet your wife? Let's lift her up as the mother of your two children's. Uh, what was your first date? How'd you all meet? Any good story there? Yeah. Uh, so we worked together uh, and I was not her boss, but a level above her at the PR firm. So it probably was frowned upon <laughs> yeah. that we would have a, a social <laughs> relationship. Did but Neely, Picador Fox know any of this? Not until <laughs> years later. We would, if we were driving to work together, I would get out a block away and walk into the <laughs> office. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says I love you like get me out, get out of the, the car. car. Get me out yeah. of the- <laughs> we had a client that was in Murfreesboro. This is before we were dating. And so we were always driving back and forth to Murfreesboro and we got to know each other pretty well on those car trips. So our first date was playing hooky on the way back to the office and we went to a like Stones River Mall or something in Murfreesboro toots. and walked around. <laughs> yeah, toots. Yeah, actually that was another spot we went to. <laughs> They never got out of the car, by the way, and it wasn't open. It was 3 a.m., but you want to hear some country music? (laughs) So how are you engaging your children? You're such a writer. You come from a reading, writing family. What's what's life? I mean, is there no screens in your house, Uh, no TV? You know, how are you guys dealing with this? We're not that bad. Um, My son is baseball obsessed like I am, so we have MLB Network, so we watch a lot of baseball together, and he just got an Xbox, so... Plays a lot of video games too, but um, they read a ton. And my wife is actually the one that's that's so good about that. They go to the library, and she has this um, sort of idea that like whatever is topical, they'll check out books about that. So if it's about to be Halloween, like they'll look for ghost stories, or about to be Christmas, you know, Christmas stories, summer, and we're going on a vacation, like they'll check out books about. Uh, that take place in New York or Boston or wherever we're headed, Perfect. and so that keeps it fun. And then. My wife loves to read so much that she's convinced them that it's family reading time. You know, it's really just a chance for her not to have to deal with me or the kids or anything, you know, but like pretty much every night there's 30, 45 minutes where everybody will sit down and read. And so, yeah, it's definitely an important part of their life. It's such a great, uh, you know, my, my boys are in their 20s, uh, but we would do the same thing. It's like reading time, and there's mm-hmm. no screens or anything on. Right. And so um, it just gets a great discipline. Uh, I still like reading in the books. I try yes. to read a book. I try to read two books a month, no matter what That's it is. Great. And because um, I travel a lot, so I'm in hotels and I mm-hmm. have time. But it's uh, the Kindle. Do you read in an actual book or on the Kindle? I like their actual book. I uh, old school. So I, I, I don't have it. a Kindle. I, I don't open it and sniff it. I do look at my phone a lot uh, and get in trouble for that for Twitter and Facebook. And But as far as books, it, it's the hard copy. Well, and my nightstand is in all girl ballers. And, all right. and I, so I went to Parnassus, went on a vacation, recently wanted to get some reading. And it was recommended by the person there. And Great. But, but the, what the woman says, <laughs> by the way, it's about the uh, story of the 1976 women's Olympic team, the first time they played in the Olympics, which you, you wrote. Yes. And it's got an animated color. It's not a picture. It's right, a, right. it's a car, uh, animation, right? And she says, you know, um, I said, I love David Marinus, and I, I, I love Inside Strong and Andrew. And she's, I said, she goes, of course. But this is, um, inaugural ballers is more for a, a younger, you know, like, like it's for teenagers. teenagers. Yeah. And, I, and I went, perfect. perfect. Right. <laughs> I went, no, nothing. <laughs> so I just, but right, at, right at my level, by the way. Exactly. It is, it is a well, fantastic book. I'm not done with it yet. All right. But it is really interesting. Thank you. And, and I feel like my books are, it's more like marketing that they're considered young adult books. And they are a little bit shorter than a typical adult book. But I, I think 
the adults read them and they don't feel like they're stepping down a level necessarily to read the book. But yeah, inaugural ballers, my latest book story, the uh, 1976 women's uh, Olympic basketball team, which was the first time that women's basketball was played in the Olympics. U S won the silver medal. Spoiler alert. I don't know if you've gotten to that point, but it was 76. So yeah, no, I can't I, really spoil I, I did, it. But. I, by the way, I was surprised <laughs> to learn that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's presented fairly early, but yeah, you'd think they went there and, you know, kick butt, but the yeah. Europeans were, were Soviets had a Soviets seven foot were. two center and Alex Ovechkin's mom was one of their guards and ah. they were unbeatable. And it was an upset. The U S hadn't even qualified for the Olympics. They came in eighth place in the main qualifying tournament. So there was sort of a last ditch qualifying tournament where they made it. And this team had some really significant names in the history of women's basketball. So here in Tennessee, Pat had summit Pat head at the time was uh, the co-captain of the team. She was already the head coach at Tennessee, but she was a player on the team. Then uh, Nancy Lieberman uh, had just turned 18 years old. She was still in high school and made the Olympic team. And then Ann Myers from UCLA, who was the first woman to get a basketball scholarship, um, was on that team as well. And then a woman who really hadn't gotten her due until just a year or two ago, Lucy Harris, was the uh, first black player at Delta State uh, in Mississippi. She was from a small town in Mississippi. She was the leading scorer and rebounder on this team and was the first woman ever drafted by an NBA team. The New Orleans Jazz drafted her. And Steph Curry and Shaquille O'Neal are producers of uh, a short documentary called The Queen of Basketball that won an Oscar two years ago, right as Lucy Harris was passing away. Um, it's a only 20-minute film. It's free. You can just Google it. And uh, that was really the first time that she got the attention that she deserved. Um, and so when I interviewed the coach, uh, Billy Moore, who just passed away a couple months ago, but she was living while I was working on the book, she really felt like this team uh, was such a pioneering um, team in the history of, of basketball that people didn't know anything about. And so she was willing to help me and do as many interviews as necessary and introduce me to her players. And so it was a rewarding book in that regard to hear these Olympians and it's almost 50 years later, but they were um, you know, very grateful to have their story told. You gotta wear shades. Andrew, uh, just an amazing story, and uh, it's just gonna be, uh, I think, I think your uh, legacy to reach these young kids with your books. I think you've hit a, a great target. Uh, we've talked about John knows this as CEO for jobs for Tennessee graduates. It's a challenge in fail a lot of failing schools uh, to get kids to read. So, man, this, the, your time is now. Thank you. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. It does feel, um, I mean, my first book, Strong Inside, the initial version was for adults, but it does feel more re- meaningful to go into schools with books and it's a tough time. It's not just on the kids right now uh, that they're not reading. There's a lot of pressure on librarians uh, and book bans and all these sorts of things happening around the country right now that are making it harder to get good books in the hands of kids rather than easier when it should be not an issue for a student to read a book that they're interested in. You know, sure. and every book doesn't have to be for everybody, but a book might be for somebody, right? Book for somebody, and they should have the ability to, to read the books that they want to. So another final one for me, I'll let John take it on, is uh, uh, Andrew Marinus, the special projects coordinator at Vanderbilt. When are you going to get a stadium? What is Have going on? Have you been on? over there recently? Oh, my gosh. Those hard things on my, you know, jeez. <laughs> so the school that's got $10 billion in one of the great downtown campuses in North America, 
uh, and there's been talk about this is easy to lob it out here because sure. all three of us have heard this for decades. When's Vanderbilt getting a new stadium? As every other SEC school builds a coliseum around them, what is the deal with the stadium over yeah. here? Well, you got to drive by, come over. Um, I mean, I've the stadium was renovated for the last significant time in 1981. It's pretty much looked the same since then. But right now, have you been over there, John, recently? I, I'll be like, honest. I <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Neither end zone exists anymore. I've like, seen that. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, there, the there's about to be like the scaffolding going up and everything. Like it's going to, it'll never look the same. The last, your memory of Vanderbilt Stadium is not what it's going to look like in the future. In both the north and the south end zone, very. Have you seen the pictures of what they're doing? Like it's going no. to be significantly different. So they're. I think we the, hurt his feelings. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> all right. <laughs> Where have you guys I, been? No yeah. wonder you're out of broadcasting. It's called no. current events. This might spur on a campaign yeah. to go. We are going to be better than any stadium around because I don't think a lot of people well, know about it. They just look at Vanderbilt Stadium and go, "Oh." No, I understand, and. um you know, it was also the first football stadium in the South. So that's one of the special I projects it. I did. Still <laughs> is. Well, that's the joke. It looks the same as 1922. <laughs> but we did a book about the history of Vanderbilt football last year with the stadium. And, no, it's going to be awesome. So the North End Zone has um, a basketball. Op- like you see a lot of college stadiums that have buildings in the end zones. And mm-hmm. Vanderbilt right. Stadium is going to have buildings in both end zones that serve different functions during the week. And then the sides that look into the stadium We'll have uh, suites and, uh, you know, outside boxes, and it's going to be really cool. That's great. Well, that's In the baseball yet. stadium, there was a recent announcement, too. I, I did read about that. Yeah, and they're going to have the seats above the Green Monster in left field and an upper deck in the infield and some shade there, too, which I think well, is important. Well, the baseball stadium's terrific, always. And is it McGugan Center? Yes, the Google Center is the office, and that eventually that'll be the last piece that comes down and is rebuilt. But that still is just historic because the teams sit on the end zone. Oh, Memorial Gym, Memorial Gym. I'm sorry, Uh, uh, Memorial Gym is just classic. That's my favorite place in Nashville. We had our rehearsal dinner in Memorial Gym. (laughs) True, true love. Yes, (laughs) you know the seats by the court. You're almost below sea level. Yeah, you really are. It's terrific. Guess, guess where we're going to have our rehearsal dinner. Smells like gym. Lace them up. <laughs> smells like a gym. Well, it is a gym. I have an embarrassing story about that. So, oh please, the, there was like a banquet room in there where we had the dinner. Then afterwards, everybody went to go shoot baskets. And my friend, you know Mitch Light, probably who's been yeah. with Athlon. Oh yeah, yeah. good good dude. So he was uh, in the wedding party, and he found the closet where they keep the equipment for like the halftime contests. And he found a sumo suit. You know, like people come out like waddling <laughs> around. Yeah, 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 and he put the big sumo suit on, and tipped over and you can't get up you're like a cockroach you know and my mom jumped on him and so my mom is straddling a groomsman she on memorial looped. gym court yeah it was like, oh my god where's the gift <laughs> yeah your mother i want to meet your mom That's yeah amazing. yeah she's pretty uh, crazy but i, I can't get that. that image out of my head no, with seared with how catch him blaring through memorial gym. Oh my god. well the other funny thing about that day is salman rushdie was also speaking um, at memorial gym that day in another in the practice gym and the like the fbi was there with dogs because he had a fatwa out on him like a hit still does yeah and so they were checking everybody that came it was like major security for a rehearsal dinner but it you know good makes you look more important he put on the sumo thing and it it got it got really ugly so important well that day i i I tell you you you, the future you know gotta wear shades the future looks bright Uh, you explain that with vanderbilt i've got to say that um I was, I was where did I, I thought about this last night. I thought there has to be somewhere 
where you would have approached Tim Corbin about writing a book? Does yeah. Tim Tim probably has had that done by se- several people, but or would or is that best done when he's done? I I don't know, but right. fascinating guy, incredible motivator. Um, Vandy has kept him and done everything that they need to do to keep him to compete. Mm-hmm. I, he's one of my favorites. Oh, I agree. He's an amazing person Write the and book. coach. And I've thought about that. So I've always uh, I've talked to people around him, and I know him well enough to ask, but I never know when is the right time to approach him about it. You know, and I, the feed some of the feedback I've gotten is it might be better after he's done coaching. But I think um, what's interesting to me, maybe I'm giving someone else an idea. <laughs> they'll steal my idea, but like. With Donnie Everett passing away and then his classmates, their senior year winning the College World Series and Donnie's parents being there in Omaha. I think that period of time from the time he passed away until that his teammates won that World Series would be the the, the way to illustrate the entire program in a few years. I, I like that your father wrote Once in a Great City, Detroit took a timeline of and and it's not about it, it is about Detroit, but it's about social inequity and a lot mm. of things of where America was. So taking a slice of that, I think, is is uh, is a good way. Joe, you want to wrap things up? I just uh, I think it's great, Andrew. Uh, I'm just really locked in on you reaching the kids with your writing. I just there's no better gift and skill to be a great writer and communicate. You'll see a picture that we all see, but you're able to translate that and put it into words. And with my sons, I've I just banged on them forever. If you can write, you will go everywhere in life uh, because you have to take what we all see and translate it uh, to to the paper. So congratulations and uh, you know may God bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you to reach a great generation that that you're you're a front runner you're the leader of this thanks man it's no a pressure. real pleasure to so fix that yeah. fix vanderbilt stadium <laughs> yeah. and right. what else and you got to come to that well it'll still be under construction this year and parts of next year but you got to come see it well you can invite us you got all some right. pull we're yeah. not over vanderbilt give us we, a tour right. candace was a yeah. news two intern for i was me shocked 20, when you mentioned that i had no idea ago. I all right know. all right hey thanks for being on the second cup of joe thank and you and john it's the second cup of joe and john as their guests expound on any and all topics within the realm of decency want to be a sponsor let a tv and radio guy help build your business email the show second cup of joe and john at gmail.com now hold on tight and grab another second cup of joe and john